Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, Michigan, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... In 2004, an agreement was reached between the United States and South Korean governments to move all U.S. forces in the country south of the Han River. This move will relocate the United States forces Korea from the heart of Seoul to Camp Humphreys outside the mid-sized city of Pyeongtaek and to a second major garrison outside of Daegu. The process, scheduled to be completed next year, will consolidate more than 28,000 troops into two regional hubs and will transform Camp Humphreys into the largest U.S. Army garrison in Asia. As the population of the garrison increases from 5,000 soldiers and 7,000 civilians to 37,000 in 2016, civic authorities for the city of Pyeongtaek have developed ambitious plans, including a major Samsung semiconductor chip plant, the world's largest fuel cell power plant, an expanded maritime port, a free economic zone, and tens of thousands of new housing developments. Bridget K. Martin, a Ph.D. student in geography at UC Berkeley, is researching the links between militarism and urbanization in South Korea. In the first of a two-part interview, she explains how American imperialism and Korean development, heavily connected since the end of the Korean War, are continuing to work together in new and surprising ways. so fascinating about Songdo. What is Songdo, first of all? Songdo is a part of the Incheon Free Economic Zone, and at the time that it was being constructed, as I, I mean, I've heard anyway, it's, it was the largest um, real estate development project in the world. Um, so Songdo is like around one-third, of, actually, of the free Incheon Free Economic Zone. And so. it's basically like a pre-planned and then prefab city all laid out on reclaimed land or on... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all like a sort of self-functioning uh, uh, city. It is a brand new city. that It's been dubbed a city in a box, and it's also been used as a model for other city developments across the world, which is a whole different story. But yeah, it was constructed on around 50 square kilometers of reclaimed land, which is a huge, huge area. But one of the sort of counter-narratives that I wanted to draw out um, is that the central government and also the local government had a huge, huge hand in the construction of the Songdo City project. So I think when you know foreigners especially look at it, we tend to fixate on the glossiness of it and the way that technology operates through the city or you know the sort of green aspects of the city. But we look at these sort of superficial, or the, the surface of the city without understanding how the space was actually produced um, sort of the political economy around the production of that. You know, who does, who did reclaim the land? Who was displaced? You know, no one was living on that land because it was actually um, mudflats, right? But there were a lot of people working on, mm. on, in the mudflats, fisher, fisher people. Mm. And so, you know, some fisher people ended up getting pretty sweet deals, new apartments, a lot of compensation for the loss of their livelihoods. Other people got nothing. Right. We're, um, we're sitting at Dongdaemun uh, Design Plaza right now, which is a super like Starkitect spaceship in the middle of sort of urban Seoul, but what was here before was the old stadium where 10,000 people sort of sold flea market goods, um, and that was that was bulldozed to create like a really modern thing. So you're saying that development almost inevitably leads to displacement in how it's typically done in a neoliberal way? I mean, probably empirically, yes, but maybe not necessarily. Mm. Um, I would maybe rephrase that to say all forms of development involve some set of power relations 
right? So even if it's not a physical dispossession of a population that's living in a place, there are still going to be favored actors and unfavored actors in any, you know, any kind of project. Bridget Martin is back in Korea for a third uh, tour. We met on your first tour when uh, we were both musicians and we mm -hmm. played in a band together briefly and sang together. Uh, and now you're back working on what you've described as militarism, urbanization linkages in South Korea. So mm. from what I understood reading the beginnings of that paper, the basic idea is that American imperialism and Korean development, which have been connected since the end of the Korean War, are conti continuing to work together in new and surprising ways. Is that about right? Yeah. Um, so typically in academia, when people think about, well, I would, you know, I'm, I'm looking at militarism and urbanism, but when we think militarism and urbanism together, um, there's been a huge, there's a, first of all, um, there's a huge literature on um, what the U.S. military does overseas in terms of its development projects. Um, and second of all, there's a big literature on basing, right? So studying how bases um, influence local communities. And there's a lot, there are a lot of articles that describe the horrors of basing, um, things like sex work, crimes committed by soldiers. Um, but what I'm looking at is actually a kind of a different set of processes that hasn't really been explored um, that, all, that connects militarism and urbanism. I see it as like, I don't know, like a sort of a set of cascading effects um, related to United States base reorganization in South Korea. So as you know, the city I'm looking at is Pyeongtaek, which has seen a huge base expansion, right? So the Camp Humphreys base is located there. But that base expansion has led to a number of other urban development projects in Pyeongtaek that do not immediately appear to be related to the base. So I'm trying to understand how the USFK base, US Forces Korea, USFK, um, base, reorganization, base reorganization relates to this sort of ongoing changes and emergent tendencies in the territorial politics or planning strategies in South Korea as a whole. Oh, well, tell me about Camp Humphreys, first of all. This is kind of, this mm -hmm. is an old, this is an old base, right? It's been around, like, since the end of the war, approximately, 60s? Yeah, um, it's, you know, I'm not an expert on, on military history by any means, but mm -hmm. um, it was used as an airfield um, by the Japanese, actually, during the colonial period, and then was taken over by the U.S. at some point um, during the Korean War and used as an airfield. And I think, you know, as far as I know, it remained a relatively small installation. It was always at Pyeongtaek? Uh, yeah, it's been in the same. So, so Pyeongtaek is a huge area. It's 450 square kilometer area. So when I talk about Pyeongtaek... Northeast of uh, the city? It's uh, of, of Seoul? Yeah. No, Pyeongtaek is actually south of Seoul. Oh, right. So uh, it's a huge area. It's right on the um, Yellow Sea, south of Seoul. And it's a 450 square kilometer jurisdiction. So there's this. There's kind of a bunch of different city spaces in the city of Pyeongtaek, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the Pyong the Camp Humphreys um, base is actually in the southern part of this huge area that we call Pyeongtaek. Right. So yeah. the scope of the planned development is totally staggering. It includes mm -hmm. a major Samsung semiconductor chip plant the world's largest fuel cell power plant, an expanded port, mm. a free economic zone, and also upscale and mixed income housing mm. developments. So this is, I mean, this is huge. Yeah. Um, so 
actually I became interested in Pyeongtaek because I saw all of these development projects going on. And at first I was thinking of the base as just another development project. Um, but it became very clear to me very quickly that actually the central government gave a lot of compensation to the city of Pyeongtaek for accepting the base expansion, which by the way, Pyeongtaek City probably didn't have a choice in any way. Um, so most people, I don't know how much people, attention people play, you know, pay to this, but um, there are a lot of restrictions you know, for growth actually within the Seoul region, and Pyeongtaek is included in the Seoul metropolitan, I think it's called the uh, controlled growth region. So, you know, if, if someone wants to put a factory or something like that in Pyeongtaek or in other areas near Seoul, they actually have, they're quite limited in what they, did, what, in what they can do. And the purpose of that is to um, promote like a regionally balanced development across the country so that not everyone just gravitates toward the Seoul area. But as a compensation um, for accepting the base or for hosting the base, um, Pyeongtaek City was allowed to actually have a whole bunch of industrial projects, um, like to have um, sort of relaxed restrictions for industrial projects. Mm. And they also got a whole bunch of money, um, like direct funding for other projects and for specific businesses, port expansion, a huge tourist zone. And now they're putting in an international city, which will be home to like 140,000 people. And this isn't a city that, in a city as a jurisdictional space, it only has like 450,000 people. They're already planning, they're planning basically to double the size of the population to 860,000 people, which is, you know, a lot to do by 2020. So a lot of the development uh, restrictions are kind of mm, become more lax. The mm -hmm. government also uh, has a mind to put money into the project or to help direct it uh, mm -hmm. financially. So what, is it, what does that look like? What does the means of support look like from the government? Um, is it planning? Is it financial? It's a bunch, it's a, you know, it, there's a bunch of different categories. Like, there are a whole bunch of projects meant to directly support the base expansion. So, for example, like, you know, railways and just, you know, roadways. Um, also, various facilities right around the base um, to support the community that lives there. Um, the sort of second category would be the the relaxing of restrictions. So you you know factories can be expanded beyond the size that they would be you know, normally allowed. Or um, and also the th third category would be just the direct financial support for certain projects. Right. Um, so the port area. I don't know if you're aware, but um, the Pyeongtaek port is just like growing really rapidly it's becoming a huge center of car imports and exports mm. in Korea and as trade with China is expanding it's becoming more you know an increasingly important site right, right. So, so these things are working hand in hand I mean it seems like a rational place to develop in a lot of ways yeah um, city managers are attempting to spin the local base developments the expansion mm. of the American base into an asset instead of a liability so is there a precedent for that in Korea you know Sort of the, the ex, it's not like Korea doesn't have, okay, let me rephrase that. Is there a precedent, I guess, yes and no? There's a precedent in the sense that basing is not new in South Korea or in the world and that bases always affect local economies, right? 
Um, but I think, you know, in terms of in terms of the way that soldiers can leave the base, go out and spend money. Soldiers have steady income, um, and they're not so subject to the fluctuations in the economy, which can be of benefit to people who are operating businesses right around a base. But I guess what's new about it is that Pyeongtaek is now being branded. And the agent, whoever's branding, it's not clear who's doing the branding, if it's the central government, Pyeongtaek City, or the construction companies. It's now branded as a kind of global city or international city. Mm. And that's, that's a new thing. Is that window dressing? <laughs> well, this, we'll see. You know, there, there are wildly different predictions about how many soldiers will come, how many soldiers will bring families, um, how many foreign contractors and other civilian workers will come to Pyeongtaek. But the hope is, um, at least among Pyeongtaek community leaders, that the incoming foreigners, the incoming Americans, can help create a kind of international atmosphere um, rather than just a ballooning camp town, um, which is what you kind of see now at the base. And by camp town, I mean, you know, places to drink, places to party. yeah. You know, places that, you know, where you can get a little bit of attention for, you know, from a... A special someone. From, you know, yeah. Well, I want to get back to that, yeah. but first, uh, neo-developmental uh, mm. is another way of saying neoliberal, right? So um, what is the neo-developmental mm. idea of an international city? So I use, and a lot of other people use, the term neo-developmentalism or neo-developmental. Other people use neoliberal developmentalism um, to describe the developmental state facing neoliberal pressures. So it's a way of understanding um, how the developmental state has changed, especially since the 1990s through economic liberalization, um, joining the WTO, you know, OECD, things like that, um, which is not it's not going to look, neoliberalism in South Korea is not going to look the same as it does in, you know, a place that was once a welfare state, like a lot of European states, right? How, how do we see neoliberalism having played out in Korea since the economic crisis in 1998, 1997? Right. You know, that's a huge question, which I don't really... In like yeah. 10 words or less. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can talk about it in terms of territorial development, you know, just very concrete things. Like, basically, the central government can't give huge chunks of money to industry in the way that it used to. That might Um, be the simplest way to understand it, right? They they don't centrally plan things in the same way at all. There's The the central government has a lot of power Mm -hmm. still, but they they just can't do what they used to do. Um, And the planning is a little bit different. There's more emphasis on attracting foreign investment, um, which certainly, you know, that was not the case up until the late 1990s maybe, in the Asian financial crisis. Maybe it's that, like, foreign development is allowed whatsoever. Um, because at the same time that we're suggesting that maybe neoliberalism has changed the centralization of the system, um, you still have what's essentially crony capitalism. I mean, the the chables mm. in South Korea are... Um, uh, enormously powerful in terms of like how the economy works which is a lot like how things used to work back in the 70s and 80s i i imagine the development project is a real boon for like samsung and other massive chables in korea i guess i mean just if one small point 
be that, okay, for me, I, I personally don't use the phrase crony capitalism okay. because I think there's some kind of connotation about the inherent cultural tendency. Um, rather than thinking about it in terms of is it crony capitalism or not crony capitalism, it makes more sense to look at a little bit more concretely at the, the kinds of linkages that are formed. I think, you know, the developmental state totally survives today. Um, that about the state, you know, gave birth to the Chabal in the 1960s, 1970s. Um, and now they support them in a different way. But That's, that's a totally good point because actually that sort of illuminates that I'm being driven by ideology and that's sort of reactionary in a way that... Uh, might not be appropriate. Let's oh, we can okay. we can no we, no. I I, I want to say something yeah. about that though because mm-hmm. one thing I would say like um, so think about for example the Samsung semiconductor chip plant that's going into Pyongyang. That kind of project is at once you know a very important industrial project, but it's also a very important construction project. And there are actually some very interesting Korean geographers who have tried to theorize the construction state, you know, as a way of understanding um, these links between certain sections of the bureaucracy and, like, these huge construction companies, which, you know, as we all know, you know, it's Samsung ENC, you know, it's Samsung's not just an electronics company, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's also a construction company. Right. And all of these big chaebol have their construction um, subsidiaries. So these are, I guess that's more the way I'm thinking about these territorial projects, their construction projects, and that's where a lot of the capital is earned. That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a feature contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, eslrok.com, and blogtalkradio.org. If you like what you hear, like us on Facebook. Check back here on October 14th for part two of my conversation with Bridget K. Martin. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, Michigan, I'm Andre Goulet.